I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Stony Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 12, Claudia and the New Girl. The New Girl. Intriguing. Mysterious. But will happen. Okay. <laughs> Let's get into our one sentence summaries. Mine is, the new arty girl in town gets single white female on Claudia. <laughs> I love arty as an adjective. <laughs> Uh, mine is accident prone child finds himself at the center of an ideological struggle between a working class caregiver and a bourgeois sculptor. Accurate. Um, mine is relational aggression takes center stage as teen girls battle over loyalty, integrity, and art. Integrity. Damn. I know there's a lot going on in this book. Wait, you guys, we should probably tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Amy Chikala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual, and I like health food. And I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, you can check out our prologue episode. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find us. And we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. Or if you want to buy a super cool Thomas Kishi 2020 button to sport during this presidential election season, um, you can find those also in the merch tab on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. So profesh. So <laughs> profesh. Uh, um, I think that there is a lot of interesting stuff about work and identity going on in this book. What do you, what do you make of it? Yeah, I was thinking that I wasn't quite sure how to characterize the central struggle between the new girl, the t the titular new girl, Ashley, <laughs> and Claudia and the rest of the babysitters in this book. But I've been thinking a lot about like the work ethic and how it sort of shapes um, different ways of understanding meaning in life and worth and stuff, especially in the American context. And it seems to me like the girls, I mean, obviously they're girls, but they we've talked a lot about how they're being socialized into norms of and rules of, of society in many contexts, specifically in the context of gender, um, like quite early. And I think placing kind of their relationship to the work ethic is something I've been kind of thinking around, but haven't quite settled on what I think is going on in these books. Because on the one hand, they're very, you know, entrepreneurial. And so there's a kind of pro- proto-capitalist spirit developing in them, but they're also very conscious about, you know, like having interests and making sure that they devote time to their things outside of the formal work life. But also we're we've talked a lot about how the kind of work that they're doing is care work, which is rendered, you know, feminine and the sort of domain of women. And so they're like, they're kind of have a really complicated relationship to the landscape of work in the American mm -hmm. context, particularly in the eighties, like let alone if we transplanted them into our, our, contemporary gig economy but Ashley to me in this book is like a very solid encapsulation of the like work is your your work is your life and all of your sense of worth and meaning is derived from not only how well you do it but how like how much time and effort you commit to it so any time that's spent not on your work is a time that detracts from that overall kind of calculation of, of meaning and worth. But like the way she sort of polices Claudia's relationship to work is really interesting in this book too. And I'm like, I can't figure out what's going on with the, the girls vis-a-vis -vis the work ethic, but Ashley was a very strong representative to me of this, like, you know, your work is your life. You are what you do mm -hmm. um, situ situation here. It was, and, and I didn't, pick that up as much on the first read but the second read I was like wow this is kind of bad <laughs> yeah yeah so to, to back it up for listeners that may not remember or may, may not have read this book before Claudia uh, is, meets this new girl in her English class 
Um, yes, her English mm, class because yeah. they're reading all the Newbery Award winners. Um, well, Ashley in the Wyatt. middle of English class also, so which is especially interesting to yes. Claudia, who who moves schools not only in the middle of the year, but in the middle of the day. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Claude's very, very impressed by this. Um, and she shows up, Ashley Wyeth from Chicago, and she had studied at the Keys Art Institute, which was a very famous place that Claudia had heard of. And um, coincidentally is also in Claudia's art class at the Stony Brook Art Center. Um, and uh, Ashley Well, not coincidentally. It's the well, only art class around. <laughs> fair enough. But Claudia feels it's a coincidence at first. Um, and, uh, you know, she recognizes Claudia's talent in a way that Claudia does not feel like other people do, because even though the babysitters say her work is amazing, they're not artists, capital A, they don't understand, they don't know about art. Um, and her parents, obviously, we've already discussed, don't value it as much as they value academics. Um, and so she's getting some real expert feedback from someone whose opinion matters. And this sort of carries her away into a complicated relationship with Ashley for the duration of the book. There's also another somewhat absurd fight among the babysitters, which maybe we could talk about. They like really blow up over nothing in these yeah. books. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I was curious. Well, I mean, if you go, if you guys, if that resonated that like Ashley kind of, you know, trying to discipline Claudia according to that rubric of like, if you don't spend literally all of your time on this, then not only are you not dedicated to it, but you're, it's like somehow a moral condemnation. There's like a reflection on not just like output or quality, but it, there's like a moral valence to all of her criticisms of, of like how Claudia chooses to spend her time, which really struck me on this read. So I think we all, all three of us, lived in New York and Emily, you still live in New York. Um, both you and Esme moved there for academic reasons to attend, you know, get your PhDs. Whereas Public I universities, moved, what, what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, whereas I moved to New York specifically, you know, to just like get a job or like not, I, I didn't go to graduate school. I didn't get a PhD. I wanted to work in publishing and magazine publishing specifically. So that's where it was. I had, I had to move to New York. So I feel like New York is full of a lot of singular-minded people and people move there for a goal and a reason. And oftentimes it is career or like there's a sense of ambition when you move to New York. So you end up having this, this city of millions of people who are like hell bent on like becoming quote unquote successful. And I think when you're younger, you don't, you're not able, you're not able to see outside of that because um, you're so focused but at some point, something, the like illusion breaks a little bit, or at least it did for me, um, when you realize like, oh, like my entire life is, is about work and all my self-worth is about my work. And like, if people like my work or like my status within the industry and it, it, like who, you know, who you're friends with. Um, and like, once that you start to realize that it creates kind of an identity crisis, um, you don't know who you are, like, am I this person or am I letting other people define who I am? And like, for me, it was, it was in my late twenties where I had this break relatively early just due to having a lot of very, um, hard jobs that required long hours that I just wasn't into anymore. Mm -hmm. Maybe and that's my California side <laughs> where I'm like, oh, I don't want to work this hard. This is like too stressful. Mm -hmm. Um, so I quit. And there was like a year where I was just kind of like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing or like who I am anymore because I'm not in this little insular world with other people like me who are like, you know, kind of like building each other up while also tearing you down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you know, it's yeah. interesting. It, the New York thing, like the hustle is real and New Yorkers work crazy late, but it's it's a um, uniquely American problem as well. One of my favorite feminist political theorists, Kathy Weeks, wrote a book called The Problem with Work, where she talked about kind of like Marxist feminist analyses of like how we think about work and like structures of labor. And she opens the book with the question, like, why do we work so long and so hard? And like, why don't we pay enough attention to work when we're theorizing the like political realm, given that it's the place where 
we like get disciplined around, we're primed to um, respond to authority because of our relationship to work, right? It's like a deeply undemocratic institution and it's where we spend most of our time. We don't spend Mm -hmm. most of our time like civically engaged or in like interpersonal, you know, connective relationships. We spend them in these hierarchical, um, you know, like exploitative relationships, frankly. Mm-hmm. And the the statistics about Americans in general, like New York is bad, you know, notoriously awful, but in general, across the board in the US, Americans work hours and hours and hours longer in the week and far more days in the year than mm-hmm. almost anyone else in, in like, you know, de- developed scare quotes mm-hmm. um, economies. And it's like pretty horrifying, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that that idea of kind of shaping you to only do the choice that is the right choice. And like you, you mentioned it in terms of like a creative industry. And I think that's what we see with Ashley, right? Is there's this drive. And if you want to succeed at this thing where, you know, uh, I think if you take all the 13 year olds that like art and you look at them 15 years later and see who's a famous artist, it's going to be an infinitesimally small number, right? So she's not wrong that, in order to succeed at something like that, you have to put in the time. But I think that happens in other industries and other worlds too. I know Emily and I have definitely both experienced it in academia. And I think having gone to, there's a lot of different kinds of psychologists out there, but having gone to like a very research focused institution, I was supposed to get a job in a department of psychology and teach other people to be research focused psychologists. And those were the only models that we had in graduate school. So when I decided in like year three, when I saw an assistant professor there at 9.30 p.m. on a Sunday, when I was there at 9.30 p.m. on a Sunday, I was like, oh, nope, this is not, (laughs) this is not for, this doesn't end at the end of grad school, does it? Um, Mm -hmm. I had to really branch out to try to find a different route, you know, and and a different way. Um, And yes, I'm a professor, but being a professor at a medical center is very, very different from being an academic professor, getting grants and running a research lab. And so, um, you know, I think the the lack of, and then even within that, I'm definitely like the weirdo in my department because I have a couple days off to be with my kids. And that's not a thing that a lot of people do. And my husband does that too. He's also a psychologist. And um, even having this podcast, people are like, where do you have time to have a podcast? I'm like, well, I'm not here 100% of the time because I don't want to be. So mm-hmm. I think that that idea of not overworking is still pretty um, revolutionary and radical. Um, There's also the like way that the phrase and sort of linked to like the wellness industry, how the phrase work-life balance has sort of been commodified, right? That like, you know, startups and Google, Mm -hmm. the Googles of the world are like, here's some work-life balance, like take yoga before work and shower underneath work, work and then have a beer at work after work also and it's like oh so i'm gonna have work-life balance by never ever leaving work mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just mind-boggling and then of course that's for one you know one echelon of the workforce and then there the which is like made possible through the like contingent precarious um you know overlapping labor of the working class so it's like you know, Ashley's version of the work ethic is also one that's like deeply privileged, right? Like she ha- can go all to these, go to all these art classes. She went to some fancy, you know, name brand art school in Chicago that Claudia immediately recognizes. And even their art teacher is like, whoa, Ashley, geez. what's up? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you are an adult. Well, this is and, a 13 year old. <laughs> and her parents set up a whole studio for her on the top floor of the house. So she has the best natural light. So she has like a bedroom, like a normal child. And she has her own studio at home with all the space to just do her artwork. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the girls are like babysitting so they can buy clothes. <laughs> right. <laughs> but very different. Like, they're, I guess in that sense, their relationship to their the work of babysitting is really different right there it's not like where they're they're they derive some kind of meaning from it it's like they have meaningful relationships they feel a sense of responsibility they're like you know kind of cognizant of how important it is for them developmentally which is kind of funny but they're also it's also transactional right like I can have some pocket change we can have pizza parties like I'm gonna buy some earrings or whatever and so like in that sense it's um you know a little bit more in the like commodity vein middle class like I'm going to be comfortable and 
be able to buy some things for myself. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I feel like in this book, like Anna Martin portrayed Ashley as being kind of a shitty character and also having this like ambition, right? But you can also have ambition and not be shitty. So, you know, <laughs> yes. it's, I was like, but you can, you don't, you're not necessarily that way just because you have like a talent and it's sort of like this vision of who you want to be. Cause mm-hmm. it is like, I feel like we, we like to tell these stories of like, they work so hard, they work so hard. And that's why I like hard work equals success. Right. And I mm. think that's true. Like you have to like work hard at something to become successful at anything I mean, pretty much. Sometimes, I mean, mostly yes, but sometimes it, you, well, you I guess I'm thinking, as hard. Like, I'm thinking specifically of like artistic endeavors. Like mm-hmm. you want to become a classical musician. Like you don't become, right, you can't buy your way all the way you there. You can't. Yeah. yeah. It's like, if you have a skill that's like, you're an artist or something that can be seen or heard, like you do really have to, and that's what you hear. Like you hear Jimi Hendrix, like he practiced hours and hours and hours a day. It's just like all the great to hear about didn't get there from just, they were kind of like had this single minded vision of who they wanted to be and probably were very much like my art comes first before. Mm-hmm. Right. But else. I think to your point, Ashley didn't like that could be true for Ashley and she doesn't mm-hmm. have to shame Claudia about it. Right. Yeah, totally. So she yeah. could be like, Oh yeah, I don't babysit and do other things. Cause I basically only want to do this, but that's cool that you do when you have time for art, let's hang out and do art together. Right. It right. didn't have to be, well, I don't know if I could be your friend because you waste time right. on these. You're a bad person. Yeah. Or it's like when Ashley saw Claudia with Jackie and she like gave him like a weird look, like he was mm-hmm. like, some Poor sort Jack. of creature. I was just like, you're giving like a little kid a dirty look because she's like babysitting him. Like, how yeah. is that? That's pretty fucked up, man. Right. So is Anna Martin then Emily trying to undermine this idea of uh, work equals identity and ambition equals identity? Like, do you think that she's showing the perils of that through Ashley? Is Ashley a cautionary tale where you, you can have your sculpting, but you'll be alone? Yeah. I mean, again, I'm, I'm still kind of unsure how to place the girls in relationship to the work ethic, but I think that we're getting a, a portrayal of a particularly like toxic version of it in Ashley. And that like, I mean, even in the end, right. Claudia invites her to sit with the girls at lunch and she's does it sort of begrudgingly. And Christy makes, you know, that move to kind of get over there dislike of her or or hesitation around her but claudia still says you know like i don't think ashley and i are gonna remain friends and like ashley as far as we know has no meaningful relationships at all and so i think there's definitely that's a definitely like kind of cautionary tale Mm -hmm. um i don't think anyone reads this book and is like oh yeah i'm i'm trying to have a life like that ashley character so then is that cautionary tale about ambition in general to the exclusion of relationships because it happens to be told through a like super feminine landscape or does it prop up ideas of what women should do and is it actually very retrograde and like Ashley gets hers because she's a woman who's singularly focused and not because it's just bad to be singularly focused in general well I think that potentially retrograde dimension of it is also that like the landscape where the girls have more than just ambition is again the landscape of like care work and reproductive labor and so there there's more to life for them but they're also engaging in like really typically feminine um kind of modes of being and dimensions of relationality and stuff so we're seeing mm-hmm. this like sort of toxic morally um disciplining type of commitment to the work ethic being juxtaposed with something that's traditional in a different sense but that has like a bit more richness to it um so it's kind of interesting because you could see 
I mean, maybe you could make a like a radical feminist claim for Ashley, like in defense of Ashley, actually. Right. <laughs> that she's that's like, what I was wondering. Yeah, yeah. That's I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah. She's bucking the system and saying, mm-hmm. like, I can do what I want to do. And I don't Yeah, have she's to. writing her cover letter as though she's a white man who's never had anyone tell her that she can't do anything before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, huh. I- well, but I think we're getting into like again, like Cheryl Sandberg leaning in feminism there, right? If we, mm-hmm. which is I, I think a version of feminism that we're not trying to co-sign, right? Don't yeah. like get ahead in the capitalist structure by playing like a man is like not yeah. really I think where we're trying to go with this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so like so to yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think to like commit to Ashley as a as a feminist like co- commentary would be to commit to a bad kind of feminism. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. I also think, though, to your point of the thing that the girls have that is um, different in their life is care work. The other thing Claudia spends a lot of time doing and working hard on in this book is her schoolwork. That's Um, true. And she says no to a lot of things, both for the Babysitter's Club and for Ashley, because she needs to spend time in the resource room and she needs to catch up and she needs to read her Newbery novels. And she's really taking that very, very seriously um, in a way that I like I really found her diligence very like endearing um, because, you know, it's not her favorite thing and, you know, it's a challenge for her. And she's still willing to say, like, this is like art can't be my whole life. Like, I know this is important, too, even though I don't love it. Um, And she's still kind of invested in pleasing her teachers and getting the things done that she needs to get done and knowing that she put in her best effort. And so I don't think it's only the care work that balances their lives. I think she shows that dedication to academia as well. Yeah. And I mean, also her relationship with her family is pretty cool. It's not completely traditional in the way that like Mr. Spear wants Marianne to be (laughs) like gender wise. So Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I have a question for you before we move on from this place which is, um, can a 13-year-old girl be a mansplainer and is Ashley? Yes and yes. I, a 13-year-old girl can absolutely mansplain. It's internalized misogyny. <laughs> Girls don't know what they're talking about. Um, but I think thinking about the way that Ashley is maybe bucking some feminine stereotypes kind of changes that equation a little bit i think she's definitely being snobby to claudia right and she's like you know Anne pointed out she calls her herself claudia's mentor they're both 13 right and so like (laughs) the uh, the audacity that she presumes like oh i have so much to teach you claudia like let me (laughs) let me explain the world to you is not not mansplaining yeah there's a lot of you know i'm looking at the bottom of page 42 And Ashley says, we have to figure out what the subjects of our sculptures are going to be. I'd like to help you if you want help. And then Claudia thinks, did I, did I want to help from a person who studied at Keys? Of course I did. Oh, thanks. That'd be great. I told her, but don't you mean who the subjects will be? Ashley smiled and shook her head. Like there's all of this, like, uh, let me tell you about the world of art and how you don't have to sculpt a living thing. And, um, Yeah, she's like some wizened, like eighty-year-old artist who like is bestowing her vast amount of knowledge upon Claudia. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, the fucked up thing is that if that, I mean, that context, she's probably also a man, and it, there's some really problematic undertones <laughs> to that mansplaining as well in that world. Ugh. Right. Ah, oh, fun times. Fun times. I I was. I, really struggling with like whether Ashley was acting like a 13 year old. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think she's acting like a particular type of 13 year old. I think it, you know, when kids have spent a ton of time on a particular thing and they've, and they've decided whether on their own or in a context, you know, in in concert with their parents, that there's that one thing they're going to do. I think that they, you know, it is very closely tied to identity in that early stage of identity development. Mm-hmm. And um, I can see a kid who has a singular focus like that um, in terms of is she I mean, are there specific things that she did that you were like, what? Well, there was the mansplaining dimension, but I also was thinking about the way she 
treats Claudia and like the kind of emotional manipulation and like sort of holding her friendship hostage in a sense and like mm-hmm. also the way she disparages Claudia's relationships with the other girls is I was like is this this and I couldn't quite tell whether that was something that a 13 year old would do oh yeah for sure yeah so <laughs> welcome my friends to relational aggression town um which is a, a fantastic area of uh, developmental psychology which we see a lot of in this book and we saw some of it in Marianne saves the day, but more they were just kind of in a fight there and and not talking. Whereas this time we see it from Ashley and from each of the babysitters toward Claudia when they're mad at her about all the time she's spending on Ashley and how she keeps flaking on the club. So, um, ha, do you guys have you guys heard the term relational aggression before? No, no. Okay, <laughs> you got a no and a no question mark. So, um. This is work from Nikki Crick, who is a fantastic developmental psychologist who we lost a little too soon um, in the 80s and 90s, did a lot of pioneering work looking at aggression in children in general. Again, this is older work. It's all gender binary stuff. You guys were were aware that this is problematic and it's what we know so far. And um, certainly in the 90s and still the vast majority of children identify as either a boy or a girl, but in the 90s, it was even more so. So um, she started looking at what we knew about aggression in kids and found very different patterns um, for how aggression was expressed in boys and girls. And specifically, older works in developmental psychology thought that girls basically weren't aggressive um, and that every once in a while there was a girl who would show what we think of as physical aggression, right? Like punching other kids or pushing them and stuff. And that was, um, you know, deeply problematic, but not seen as a normative part of girls' development where we get a lot of the tropes of kind of boys will be boys and excusing violent behavior from boys, um, you know, lionized in the developmental literature going way back. Um, And Nikki Crick said, look, it's, I've been a woman all my life. It is not that women are not aggressive. (laughs) We just do it in a very different way from men. And so she coined this term relational aggression, which is basically manipulating relationships um, in order to hurt somebody else. So it's harder to catch in a classroom. um, But when girls are mad at each other, you know, the, the, the standard, and again, always more individual variability than there is in a group. But when you're looking at groups of people, the standard, if you look at boys, you know, ages 7 to 12, 13, is if they are mad at each other, they'll, you know, maybe cuss each other out or, you know, get in a fight, a physical fight. Um, And girls are mad at each other. They will do things like write nasty little songs as they ride their bicycle or (laughs) leave mean notes or say, you know, you don't know what a friend is if you're not going to dedicate your life to art. So um, we see a lot, you know, relational aggression really got into the mainstream media in the late 90s and early 2000s with books like um, Queen Bees and Wannabes and Odd Girl Out. Those were big books written based on the, like pop books written based on the developmental literature. Um, Mean Girls, the movie was based on Queen Bees and Wannabes, uh, the Tina Fey movie. And so th- those are relational aggression tactics, you know, getting someone on the phone and talking about them when they don't, yeah, the other person doesn't know you're there, that classic scene in Mean Girls. Um, Foot so cream I, for face cream. Yes. <laughs> so I think we see a lot of that in this book. And I actually think it's, it's pretty developmentally appropriate. And especially um, there's some evidence that it's more likely when it's like, you know, we've talked a lot about like good kids and bad kids in our discussions, right? And so you need plausible deniability and you need to not be caught by adults um, when you're doing these kinds of things. And so it's like, oh, well, that was just a joke or that wasn't really, I wasn't really serious, obviously. You know, mm-hmm. you can kind of say that it wasn't meant as meanly as it was, but when you're the recipient, you definitely mm-hmm. know that it's mean. Yeah. Um, so I, I wrote down a, a few of the insults. Yeah. Um, What'd you find? Well, you know, Marianne does not say anything because Marianne would never say anything mean, and she she just cries instead. So and she's just and quietly or, judgmental, yeah. right? She writes it down for herself, though, for herself. Sure. She doesn't show it to Claudia. So, but each Stacy, Christy, and Don all get their little digs in at Claudia. So, as as we just mentioned. Dawn makes up this like little song in her head as she's riding her bike over to a babysitter's club meeting that goes, Trader, Trader, Claudia, we hate her. So long. See you later. Goodbye, Claudia. 
so first it's very murdery it's very yes very <laughs> murdery also like she's riding her bike and she's just like made up this song in her head that's what you, that's the kind of thing you do all the time right emily Yes, all the time. I have a Esme jingle and an Anne jingle. I just <laughs> oscillate between on my bike rides. <laughs> um, oh, and then Christy leaves a note um, that says, Benedict Arnold, the Wicked Witch of the West, Claudia Cushy. Right. Oh, it doesn't say like famous traitors. Famous traitors, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. Um, also... What is? Would we say the Wicked Witch of the West is a famous traitor? Yeah, that seems weird to me. I feel like she's really on brand. She's literally called a Wicked Witch. <laughs> well, but does she flip on her sister? Is that what she's saying? Right? Because isn't she Glinda's sister? Mm, I forget. It's been so long. So Stacy gets my favorite insult. And she writes a note for Claudia and hides it underneath her pillow, I believe. And the note says, In my bread box of friends... You are a crumb. <laughs> that is like an old lady insult. Like who I can't imagine in 1988 calling anybody a crumb. Can can you, Anne? I know Emily wasn't born no. yet. But, like, <laughs> but I was like, where does, where does Stacey even like, come, that's like her insult? Yeah. Yeah. But it is relational aggression. It's not particularly good relational aggression. <laughs> I don't think it's very sophisticated, but, um, but that's what it is. Um, and there's, and there's some evidence that's interesting that like when, again, within the gender binary, when kids show the type of aggression that is not associated with their gender. So when boys are relationally aggressive or when girls are physically aggressive, that's linked to poorer outcomes. So more mm. mental health symptoms and more difficulties with peers. And so there's really, a. a expectation that you'll you'll act in this way and and I think that what that means um and I haven't looked at this literature in a while so I apologize this is me speculating not the data but I think what that means is that it is also easier to recover from if you're doing the right kind of aggression so quote unquote right so we see the babysitters able to discuss and apologize and move along um, whereas I think if like any of them had come up and punched Claudia in the face, that would have been harder to recover from. Mm-hmm. Is that like gender norms, like regulating mm-hmm. behavior, like those behavioral interactions? I mean, I would assume so. Are you asking like a nature or nurture question or? No, no. I mean, you know where I fall on that kind of question. I'm just wondering like whether, because it seems to me that gender norms would play a role in both like developing different patterns of aggression, but also in the ways that those get like socially punished. Mm -hmm. The aggressive behavior gets like socially punished. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So kind of afterwards, you know, boys that punch somebody, it's, it's pretty easy to move on. Like that's like, yeah, I was pissed at you. And so, and then I'm, you know, and then it's done. Whereas um, relational aggression takes more unwinding. And I think all of that is reinforced by gender norms, mm-hmm. right? I'd be curious to look at what I didn't do. And I can do this um, after is to look at um, some of the newest research, because of course, relational aggression is a lot easier to do on the internet, right? You can't right. physically hurt someone online. And so I do think that boys are doing it more and more. And um, yeah, right. <laughs> so man, they get too much airtime on this podcast. <laughs> but so I, you know, I, those original studies were back in the, you know, the late eighties and through the nineties and early two thousands. Mm-hmm. So I'd really be curious, um, with internet culture if, and especially now that we're in a pandemic and lots of kids are not able to see each other for a long period of time, I'll be really interested in the literature in the next couple of years of kind of what I'm presuming will be the expansion of, of relational aggression. There's also some evidence that relational aggression has taken um, root in terms of like higher income and um, like higher class situations. Like it's less acceptable for like a boy at a private, like a fancy private high school to punch somebody versus like a boy at a public high school. So like there, you know, the more um, sort of class expectations there are in you, the less likely you are to engage in physical aggression. But relational aggression is still frowned upon for boys. And so it puts them in a complicated situation if they have anger to deal with. Right now I'm thinking about Obama's latter half of his second term 
the Senate Republicans. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's a really good yeah. uh, example of adult men engaging in relational aggression. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Whereas they would, that would be a huge scandal if somebody just punched somebody else in the Senate, right? Like that's a situation I mean, where the demand, the ma- demand characteristics of the situation make it very clear that you can't use physical aggression. I was thinking when you were talking about um, speculating about how that data might look differently in the pandemic, that that was something I was actually thinking about with the work ethic and work-life balance as well, that I've been seeing a lot of articles about how essentially work-life balance has disappeared for folks who are working from home because there's an expectation that like, if there's a device near you, you'll be on it or checking it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Which is horrendous. Don't do that, everybody. Turn off your work email at night. (laughs) So I have a question about relational aggression. Yeah. Specifically to this book. Let's talk about how this, the source of the of the fight because mm-hmm. I is it because they're mad at Claudia because she's not she's making the babysitters club kind of her like not her priority anymore is it because mm-hmm. they don't they don't, they're jealous mm-hmm. of, of Ashley I mean it's probably a combination of the two mm-hmm. but I just feel like were the other members of the club not very understanding of they just like went from zero to a hundred. It was like Claudia's a traitor. She missed she missed she missed a meeting. Like she was trying to like she in her mind she was doing something that was important to her because she met this girl who like shares the same interest. Um and then they just totally shat all over her for it. <laughs> but they start punishing her before she even misses a meeting, right? She's like five minutes late and they to me, it seems like a huge overreaction, frankly. Like, they immediately start punishing her. And then, like, if your friends are already pissed at you, why not fucking miss a meeting? Like, they're going to be mad anyway. <laughs> like, they... I don't know. <laughs> that, is, <laughs> that is such a uh, Emily slash Dawn reaction. I feel like that's a, like, that's a very, like, give no fucks. Like, uh, for, for those of us who are more... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like conflict averse slash, uh, you know, care more about being liked. Like if they're mad at me already, damn Skippy, I'm going to be at the meeting and I'm going to bring snacks, you know, like, oh, yeah. no, I'm <laughs> out. Avoid it. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think all of those things are right. Right. I think they, they've just gotten to this spot you have to remember how how relatively new all these friendships are, right? So Marianne and Christy and Claudia grew up together, but they've recently had this this big split between them at the beginning of seventh grade where Claudia was growing up and Christy and Marianne were not and were super babyish. And so they've found their way back together through the Babysitter's Club. So that feels pretty tentative. Stacy's only lived there a year and she's so cool and sophisticated, feels like she could bounce at any minute. And she also is still raw from her friendship with Lane, right? And so she has a hard time trusting people. Dawn's brand new. She's only been there half a year. And she's like very tentatively involved. And there's other tensions with Christy because of her relationship with Marianne. So like we see them as this very tight unit, but it's all still new. And because, you know, part of how we define ourselves is by our relationships. That's like a big part of how all humans define themselves. Like I'm you know, I'm a partner, I'm a best friend, I'm a daughter, I'm a, you know, uh, how we're um, attached to other people is part of our identity. And this being a member of the Babysitter's Club is we see in each of the books how it's super important to all of them. And Claudia talks a lot in her kind of internal monologue about how it's super important to her. But none of them communicate very directly, because they're 13. Right. And so I think that that, um, that potential break when they've all just come together for lunch, right? It's still pretty early in the school year. They used to, you know, Christy and Marianne were with the Schillibers and Claudia and Stacy were with the boy and girl table with Dorianne and Pete and everybody. And so I think it feels still pretty um, tentative. So you think the though, stakes are that yeah. high for them? It's like what Claudia's risking is the dissolution of our entire like friendship unit. Yeah. Think about being 13. <laughs> they're not they're not 42 and 32, you know? <laughs> like they're 13. Like your friendships are your whole world. It's the most important thing. Yeah. I don't think I remember being 13. <laughs> 
what if I showed up for this podcast late? Because I was like, I'm hanging out with this other podcast. <laughs> Would you guys just like shun me? Dig at Bravo me because I can't tell time. <laughs> <laughs> I would be pissed. No, but of course we wouldn't be that pissed because I we're adults. Yeah, because Emily doesn't give a shit about any of us. She wouldn't show up for the next three. She'd be like, Anne's mad at me anyway. Yeah, like, whatever. <laughs> Anne has a new podcast, so I guess I'm off the hook. <laughs> no, but yeah, you, you, this is why the developmental lens is so appropriate. It's so important because, you know, this is also partly how we define psychopathology, right? Is like, is something, does it make sense when you're, 13 versus an, an adult, right? So if you came to me as an adult and you were like, oh, at work one day at lunch, my friend didn't sit with me. She sat with a new person on the job. And now I'm writing poems about her and ditties about how she's a traitor. And I'm like obsessively thinking about it. Then I would probably be able to like give you some harmful dysfunction as your clinical psychologist. Like that would be really problematic. But when you're 13, that, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know? Another thing, so Dawn is like complaining. She's the alternate officer, which means if someone's missing, she takes her place and can assume their duties. So she's mm-hmm. like bitter about, yeah, I've been taking over for all your duties, Claudia. Which Claudia's, as far as we know, Claudia's duties are like, it's her phone and she provides like snacks. Mm-hmm. So like, what is Dawn? Dawn shouldn't really be complaining about anything. She's, you Did know. she say that directly? Yeah. Did she well, say that to Claudia? Yeah, I think, didn't she? Because in one of the notebook entries, she says, it's, I don't mind being vice president, you guys. She's a little more laid back toward the beginning about it. I think she just says it as like a, I think it's just a dig. Exactly. Exactly mm-hmm. what I was going to say. I don't think she actually cares. I think she's just like, and another thing. Damn. Although the alternate officer is a pretty sweet gig. <laughs> if your job is to do nothing and then you have to do a different nothing, I could see how that'd be a drag. Oh my god! Yeah, what have we discussed? It's what so officer? Dark. What officer we would want to be? Like, oh, the alternate officer, obviously. Doesn't it just go with our break? I mean, you would also want to be vice president and just chill and not have to leave your house and give people candy. This is true. <laughs> that sounds ideal. And I'm obviously the president. <laughs> like, yeah. it's fine. This is not a discussion. Yeah, I guess it could be the secretary, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. I'd prefer not to. Can you do that too, Esme? And the treasurer? <laughs> yeah, you're going to need to be the treasurer as well. <laughs> you guys really don't want me to be the treasurer. Wait, wait. Uh, all, you're the treasurer, us- the secretary, and the president, and I'm the alternate officer. Yeah. <laughs> um, if any one of us is going to be the treasurer, it should be Anne. She's definitely the best with money. We don't we don't have those good money genes. Yeah. <laughs> But I'm not, no, I'm not keeping not. track of anything, so that'll be interesting. Okay, Esme, are you done with your little bit of psychology? I have some thoughts on Jackie Rodowski's developmental coordination disorder, but I think I'm going to save that for Christy and the Walking Disaster. He has a disorder? I think so. Yeah. Wow, okay, what a tease. Yeah. I feel like much, we keep on like skipping over Jeff, the Jeff plot. Oh, poor Like Jeff. we did that in the last episode, too. Which yeah. is maybe why the Netflix series just completely because no one remembers him or <laughs> remembers to talk about him. But I feel like it's a pretty um, that B plot is very a very somber, real, sad thing compared mm-hmm. to most of the plot lines and all the books we've read so far. Yeah. So Don has to go pick Jeff up from school. More emotional labor, Emily. I'm sure you are in tune with that. Um, mom's at work at Stanford in some random meeting, so there's no cell phones. They can't call her. She has to bring Gabby and Mariah Perkins to pick him up from his teacher because he like threw something in class and a mosaic fell down and cut a girl's leg and he's in big trouble. He's just getting in trouble all the time because um, he's not happy. He wants That's to also the chapter where I presume Don threw Claudia drags uh mrs prezioso and talking about how miss miss perkins is like a good a good mom mom. because she doesn't care about them getting their clothes dirty or whatever Mm -hmm. (laughs) in that same chapter that don is also being super parentified (laughs) yeah well speaking of jeff so there's a lot of internet chatter about a possible like lesbian awakening between claudia and Ashley and there's Mm. a lot of there's a lot of fan fiction about it 
and I found this one this one story. But in the story, Jeff and Byron Pike are a couple. Oh, I actually really like that. Yeah, yeah I can see that. So see anyway, that. not when they're still ten, right? Like this is in the future. This like, is in the future. Older. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this particular, there's a lot of fan fiction about this, um, but this one is called "With Gentle Curves and Tender Feelings." <laughs> nice. That's for the listeners. Oh yeah, like when um, what did Ashley like uh, sculpt She's, the concept? Yeah, and she right? suggests l- love, and Claudia's right. like, "How would you do that?" And that was her explanation: <laughs> With gentle curves and tender feelings. I mean. So the, the one like line, that. no, me neither. But the one line summary for this fan fiction is Claudia realizes she's not just boy crazy after all. Huh. So this, this entire story is actually pretty good. Um, it takes place in the future. Um, and Claudia is kind of like looking back at her younger days and like when she met Ashley. But it, so Janine is also has a girlfriend. Uh, Becca Ramsey, Ramsey and Charlotte Johansson are a couple. <laughs> oh, nice. yeah. Um, so I think I'm really that's... into this gay Stony Brook. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but she just talks about how her like sexual awakening with with Ashley, um, and it it goes it gets a little racy. So I'm not going to read those parts, but. From here, I find just like a lot of people talking about how they really think this is what this relationship was really the subtext of it. Mm, and that's why everybody got so mad. Yeah. Or like they were just also talking. I was like also reading um, just some book reviews on Goodreads to see like up, up people's takes on the book. And this one girl who is a lesbian said um, it was like, lesbian homework if you've ever been super possessive of your your girlfriend like you might mm-hmm. be a lesbian you know mm-hmm. um, or like if you had those very obsessive possessive feelings over a friend like mm-hmm. like that that could mean something but so. this is i think this is interesting though because we were just trying to figure out like what's ashley's mm-hmm. deal vis-a-vis like her kind of moral judgments of Claudia's commitment to her art. So I'm like, is it possessiveness that she's doing? Or is that like how we can track her behavior toward Claudia? Or is it this, is it like really the art obsession? Like I'm, I'm not, I guess I could, I guess they could work together. Like that could, they could both be. Yeah. They could work together. My actually, before I say my problem with this, do do you want to credit that? Do you have the name or the screen name of the fanfic author? And just so we make sure to give them credit. Yes. Their name, Lauren. Thank you, Lauren. It's fun to think about. Um, My, my issue with it is that I feel like, while I do love this like hyper queer Stony Brook with all of the babysitting kids coupled off in middle and high school, I worry about the need to sexualize slash romanticize everything and that that contributes to the devaluing of friendship and female friendship in particular. So I think, you know, part of the reason that the Babysitter's Club struck such a chord when they came out and why they're still coming, you know, striking a chord now with the Netflix series and everything else is that we don't have as many good depictions of strong friendships and their ups and downs and everything in the world, particularly of women, because it's seen as trivial or not important. And I think there's this lens where we like, if someone is obsessive as a friend, it must mean that they maybe they have a crush on them or they have some latent uh, lesbianism that they don't know of or something like that, as opposed to, no, she's just really obsessive. And like, if, if we, if we view it as obsessive, whether it's about the art or it's about Claudia as a person, I mean, I think the moral of the story is that it's not about Claudia as a person, but let's say for a second that it was, I mean, teens get really possessive and obsessive about their friends. That's part of that thing that we were talking about before of like, that's a developmental stage. And if you read it with adult eyes, that would be a really weird thing to do if you're like a 25 year old grad student, unless you had some sexual or romantic feelings. Um, But it's not unusual for teens yeah I guess I'm trying to think about like if if there were sexual romantic undertones in a a hetero context would the girls have reacted 
Like, would the friendship have been as jeopardized? Yeah. Because I think, like, you could still you could still reflect on how possessiveness, you know, destabilizes friendships when there's, like, a romantic interest that's the destabilizing force, right? And you could still have a lot to say about mm-hmm. how friendship plays out in that context. Like, it, it doesn't... I see what you... I see your point, but I think you could do it in a way that... <laughs> avoids that like trope or right you definitely could but i feel like the intensity of the friendship from ashley is also legitimate and important right okay you know even if she doesn't have a crush on her right right? like she could still be possessive and only interested in claudia and want that you know that could be very important to her and have nothing sexual or romantic about it Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i can see how Ashley just really likes Claudia just purely based on her talent. And that's pretty much, I think she says at some point in the book, I only spend time on people with talent. Mm-hmm. Which is like, why would you say that to someone you're trying to be friends with? I don't, that's mm-hmm. bizarre. But, um, you know, it seems like she also just doesn't have friends. She didn't have friends in Chicago. Uh, she spends all her time doing art. So I get, it just might be that she has to combine like, whoever she associates with has to somehow benefit her vision of becoming this artist. Um, and this is the only way she knows how to make friends. Mm-hmm. I would not want to be friends with her. Yeah. It yeah, sounds like a ambitious. lot of work <laughs> yeah. for friendships that require less effort. <laughs> yeah. We know, we know Emily. Sense of theme here coming from Emily. <laughs> yeah. Work is stupid and we should do less of it. It, even in friendship <laughs> in all domains all right I agree with that, i'm gonna though. i'm gonna link to the right to be lazy for this episode oh for sure yeah fantastic um all right and what any other pop culture stuff that jumped out for you no it's just uh i think one thing i remember as a kid was the whole like let, let's short sheet her bed and i, I was don't like, know what I that just, means yeah i didn't know what it meant either like whatever like 30 years ago <laughs> So I is it something people did in the fifties or something? It's like a yeah, I think it's like a fraternity prank. Yeah, um, it's just like they basically take your your top sheet and they fold it over, so it's kind of like a pocket. Mm-hmm. So when you try to put so when your you get feet in bed, down, you can't it's put caught your feet. in the middle. Emily looks very confused right I now. Can't picture it. Do we have to find you a diagram, Emily? Yeah, could you please draw it and? Post it on Instagram. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm never doing that again. <laughs> um, then the other thing I found interesting was just uh, the general, uh, like how hippie equals weird, strange um, in 1988, which I guess the whole trend of bell bottoms didn't come back in until the 90s. But even in the beginning of the book, like, she Claudia had seen the, the movie Woodstock and she called it a bizarre movie called Woodstock. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. Ashley with her like, you know, her prairie core clothes is like weird and like, come on, Claudia, she's wearing bell bottoms. The whole school's mm-hmm. talking about it. Like it's like what Stacy said. I have a question. Yeah. Yes. Is prairie core a thing or did you just make that up? I don't know. I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> And it is now like my new has, style. I feel like it probably does exist. And I think I probably just it came out like I pulled it from a part of my brain where I saw it on the Internet or something. Incredible. It's, yeah, because there is like a there's like a whole subculture of girls who who love to dress like that. Like those dolls, you know, like they were like little just like Ashley looks on the cover of this book. Can you show it to me? Yeah. I can't find mine. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Prairie Core. Wow. Prairie Core. Is she oh. wearing Timberlands? I think she is. Huh. Yeah. So I did find some references to Prairie Core um, on the internet from like 2018 that um, we can we can post link to that. But it, it really wasn't happening then, though. I, you know, as a as a having a mom who's somewhat of a uh, fashion icon um <laughs> lots of lots of denim and beads and prairie core accessories i remember terry Shantz, shout out to terry making fun of my mom's palazzo pants when we were in elementary school and calling them bell bottoms they weren't but i think that it was like a common 
the sixties were out in the eighties. Like if you think about what people wore in the sixties and what people wore in the eighties, they were very different. Yeah. Why do we think Ashley chose is choosing to dress like this? Like it's very specific for a 13 year old in 1988 to really just, you know, dedicate herself to this particular look. And where is she buying these clothes? Yeah. yeah. I was wondering too, because her, the way that they disparage her hippiness doesn't like map on to the way they talk about like the Don California trope. Like they don't paint her as like being an individual for dressing like that, that, they're just all have completely bought into the idea that it's weird that she does it. There's no like, well, I think it goes with her overall weirdness though, right? That she's not interested in being friends with anybody else. And she's not trying to like fit in at SMS at all. So her clothes are weird because they think she's weird. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. one doesn't help the other. Right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with being a hippie? Yeah. I mean, lots of stuff. Reagan. What's true? Right, we are in Reagan era Connecticut. Yeah. Okay, touche. Yeah. One other thing on the topic of appearances, uh, Claudia kind of takes a dig at Christy when she's describing Christy. And she says, Christy is really cute, but she never bothers to make herself look special. And she just kind of yeah. like goes into like all she wears, she just wears the same outfit all the time. She only brushes her hair. And like in comparison to Christy, I look like XYZ, like I look super cute. So I feel like, I feel like Claudia tends to be judgmental of Christy and Marianne. Well, Marianne is becoming more fashionable now, but mm-hmm. you know, I feel like Claudia is always like kind of ragging on how Christy how Christy dresses. Uh, I think she gets a pass. Her friends exoticize her. Whatever. <laughs> this is true. Christy she can criticize pop- their wardrobes. <laughs> yeah. Christy did pop Claudia exotic and Christy and the snobs. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know. To me that just seemed like she was I don't think Christy would disagree with that characterization though. Mm-hmm. Like I think Christy would be like, Yep, sounds right. I don't care about that. You sound like you're speaking yeah. from experience as me. Yeah, I mean I just I feel like it's not um you know, it's not an insult if the person agrees with you. I feel like she's just saying what she's saying. Like she's just mm-hmm. describing some of the differences between them. Yeah, I just think whenever you say someone is like cute, but like that's never a great thing. <laughs> like the but is not good. Mm. Yeah. But she could, you know, it's like, but she could do this better or she could be cuter if she did this. Mm-hmm. But also Chrissy's goal is not to look cute. So Right. Um, in terms of Claudia's candy stash, um, got a good a good variety, this being a Claudia book. Doritos. She loves I'm beginning to realize she loves Doritos because she eats them a lot. Um, bazooka bubblegum, cookies, Twinkies, pretzels in the pajama bag. Is this Crackers. the second appearance of the pajama bag? This is the second appearance of the pajama bag spelled with the Y, which yeah. is also a weird regionalism. Right. We still have not heard from any um, listeners, either Japanese American or New Englanders telling us what a pajama bag is. So we're dying to know. Yeah. Um, and then marshmallows and licorice sticks. Should we should we start like make pajama bags a thing? Like, should I make I some? Because I can make it. Here's my question. Where do I put my pajama bag? Like, where does my bag full of pajamas go? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm Googling pajama bag and there's there's stuff, but I still don't know what it like. I just see ads for them. I don't know what they are. Let me ask you some of them look like stuffed animals. And but you like I guess you just keep your pajamas in it. So like on your bed? Yeah, so you don't have to like get that, you know, because you could wear pajamas a few days in a row, right? And then only a few. Then... <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about our pajama habits. No, I'm just kidding. I, I don't know the listeners well enough yet. <laughs> you stick yours under your pillow. I think that's what yeah. most people do, right? I don't. I don't know. I just shove them under there. When Gary makes the bed, he folds them and puts them under my pillow, but I don't fold them. I just shove them under. Huh, interesting. I can't talk about pajamas anymore. <laughs> I'm seeing a lot of vintage pajama bags, like from the 50s. Uh, okay. 
and like and some of them just, are embroidered and say pajama on them and then ooh, ooh, there's one that's like a racist depiction of an african-american on a pajama bag okay yeah yep. it's, it's like a, a little yeah are pajama bags like white lady word art <laughs> <laughs> like live laugh love you mean uh-huh. yes uh, like, that's what i mean Inhale, exhale. <laughs> no, mostly it looks like they look like stuffed animals. And so it sits on your bed and it's like a cute stuffy, but like inside is where you keep your pajamas. Okay, great. But then some we of them it. are white lady word art. But like it still doesn't ask, answer why Claudia had this in 1988. I feel like it's just another place to hide candy, right? Like it's like her hollow book. Her, yeah. Her vintage hollow book is like her vintage pajama bag. Yeah. Perhaps we also we also got a fan theory that um, when it comes to pop culture, sometimes um, and so thank you to Paige who emailed us that sometimes Anna Martin may be coming up with pop culture references from her youth from the late 60s and then sort of transporting them to Into the 80s Stony Brook. Yeah. So our Cam Geary discussion, Paige was wondering if maybe Cam Geary was actually based on Desi Arnaz Jr., who would have been the right age when Anna Martin was 13, mm. um, which is an interesting theory. And so I wonder Hot. if she just, you know, Anna Martin had a pajama bag, you know, so then Claudia has a pajama bag. Fine. Okay. <laughs> what about tallies? <laughs> All right. So um, this is a pretty good one. We have. All right. So not a ton in this book, actually, surprisingly. Um, there's one more babyish, which we haven't seen in a little while. Um, so back to your point of Claudia being relatively judgmental, Anne. Um, and then two Dawn descriptors, Emily, one equating her with health food and another Dawn is an individual and then Marianne shy. So mm-hmm. it brings our totals 14 for babyish, 16 for bossy, um, 16 for sophisticated, 18 for shy, six sensitive, three exotic, two Dawn is an individual and I went back, like I said, I would. We have six so far in the series that Dawn's personality trait is liking health. Mm. You guys, yeah. I'm really excited for favorite lines because this is the book I read when I came up with that idea for this podcast. <laughs> All right. We did this one before as a practice, as a drive run podcast. Yeah. 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 <laughs> My favorite line from this book is when they're uh, reconciling near the end and something silly happens and Stacy exclaims, lunatics, club of fools, club full of fools. Yes. Incredible. Incredible line. Very good. Club of Fools. Club of Fools is really good. I'm wondering, now that we're doing this, whether Stacey is not intentionally being like anachronistic or like out of her own age because she has so many like one-liners and I'm like what 13 year old is saying this I Mm -hmm. like is she doing it on purpose is this like yeah a Stacey sophisticated this is her sense of humor thing it might be right she's reading the New Yorker Mm -hmm. um (laughs) lunatics yeah yeah so that oh speaking of which that was on my um social justice list um lunatics and uh uh Ashley's also wearing an Indian headband and then they say police man instead of police officer at one point. Mm. Um, mm. Club of Fools is really good. Yeah. I had I had one other that I wrote down just because I think it was really funny when Mariah and Gabby were um, doing the makeup on their dolls. Two of their dolls are that uh, Mariah introduces are named Mrs. Xerox and Mrs. Refrigerator. <laughs> um, so I really liked that in the tradition of like Ramona Quimby's doll Chevrolet. I thought that those were those were good, but I don't know if it compares to Ship of Fools. Club of Fools. Club, oh, sorry. Ship of Fools <laughs> is an erasure song. <laughs> Club of Fools. Club of Fools. And what do you think? Um, I, I would like to go a couple of fulls. A, a couple of my other favorite ones were um, on page 134 before the art show. And Chrissy says, relax, Claude. You're going to give yourself a po- apoplexy. <laughs> like going to give herself a stroke. Yeah. I was like, who? What? Yeah. Yeah. These kids say some weird things. And then I also yes. liked uh, the description of the doorbell that's broken. Which is boing boing bonk. <laughs> yeah, that's very good. Yeah, very good. <laughs> that almost tempts me away from Club of Fools, but I think Club of Fools is still the best one. We should do. It. I think yeah. that's more appropriate for this for this book. I yeah. require it. 
Okay. So if you would like to remain friends with me and remain yeah. podcasters with me. <laughs> you... I was going to say, we all know Emily could quit the podcast at any moment. So at we any better moment, placate yeah. her. Honestly, it's a lot of work. <laughs> okay. So what about our pizza toast? Hmm. I thought it was cute that Anna Martin dedicated this book to the readers. Did you notice that? I did oh, that's sweet. Yeah. Should we be cheesy and pizza toast to the listeners? <laughs> I said cheesy. That was multiple layers of meaning there. Pizza toast. I get it. Pizza toast. Oh, cheese. I get it. I Thank you. Funny. Yeah, I have a PhD. Really so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I kind of want a pizza toast to Mrs. Bear, Claudia's art teacher. I feel like she's an adult who is like acting like a an, an effective adult in this thing. Like she, like when Claudia says she doesn't have time to finish the piece, she doesn't pressure her. She like respects that she needs to work on art and school and babysitting. Like she's the model of not being mad at Claudia for making her own choices. Unlike the babysitters and Ashley. Um, but, and then she's the one that leads to Claudia getting the honorable mention. Yeah. But is it cool to like enter a kid's, unfinished piece of art without their permission i mean probably not <laughs> i mean i'm here for it i'm down to toast it turns out okay yeah, I, I just think she's great and i and i think you know ashley's trying to throw her some shade because she's not so fancy and i just think she's like a solid presence in their lives but also, if we think her lack of consent is a problem I, I'm, I'm not married to it we could also pizza toast to prairie core <laughs> yeah i think that's better. fair enough <laughs> In defense of Ashley's aesthetic choices. Yes. Okay. Pizza toast to Prairie Core. To Prairie, to Prairie Core. Core. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna and Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller. Performed by the band Kid Kid. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash Stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for.